Have you ever been scrolling through social media and encountered a post like this one? How about a post like this one? Or what about a post like this one? Now, I don't know about you, but over the years, I have never liked, commented on, or shared those kinds of images. I don't care if you choose to, but for me, those kinds of posts feel just a little bit too much like those chain letters I used to receive when I was in middle school. And in case it's of worth to you here, I never forwarded those along either. While I am certain many people share these kind of posts with good intentions and pure hearts, I'm also certain many people feel uneasy and even conflicted on what to do when they come across posts like these on social media. Perhaps you have been there. Here you are just minding your own business, scrolling social media on the couch, and wham, you come across one of these images out of nowhere. You freeze. The panic sets in, and you begin asking yourself questions, questions like, if I choose not to share this picture, am I denying my need for Christ? If I don't like this photo, am I failing to be light and salt? If I fail to share this picture, does it mean that I'm ashamed to be associated with Christ? While it is possible someone may choose not to share a picture like that because they're ashamed of Christ, it is absurd to suggest that everyone who fails to forward along that meme of Jim Caviezel is somehow ashamed of Jesus. Said differently, how you respond to a meme is not the litmus test of whether or not you are ashamed of Christ. Now, if you can relate to what I just shared about being conflicted when you come across a picture like the ones we just saw, I don't want you to be embarrassed. While some may chuckle at how something as silly as an image like that can cause a mini existential crisis, I'm actually convinced there's something very healthy and appropriate about being fearful of denying Christ. In fact, I would go so far as to say we should all have a healthy paranoia about being ashamed of Christ. After all, as we'll see a little bit later, if we are ashamed of Christ— then one day, when Christ comes, he will be ashamed of us as well. So this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the passage of Luke 9, 26. There we're going to see Christ fire a sobering warning shot and warn all of us of the fate of those who are ashamed of him. Luke chapter 9, verse 26 it says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. For whoever. First, I want you to notice this morning who this warning is written to. This warning, depending on your translation, may something, say something like it's written to whoever or whomever or if anyone. They all really carry with them the same idea. This is a universal warning. This is sort of a blanket warning for all of us to pay attention to. 
You see, this isn't a warning just for non-Christians or some small subset within the church. No, I'll say it again. This is a warning for every single person. It's a timeless, universal warning to each and every one of us. Now, when Christ originally gave this warning, he gave it to a crowd of people that included some of the disciples. I want you to just stop for a moment and think about that, if you will. Jesus gives this warning about being ashamed of him to this crowd, and in that crowd, there are people like Peter, like James, and like John. Christ gives this warning to Peter and to James and to John, and you can be sure if they needed to hear that warning, as his disciples, those that knew him better than anyone, that followed him for years, that were closer to him than anyone else, if they needed to hear this warning, then you can bet that we need to hear this warning as well. Because the reality is, if it's possible to be an apostle and potentially be ashamed of Christ, then it's certainly possible to be a tither and to be ashamed of Christ. It's possible to be a small group leader and be ashamed of Christ. It's possible to serve in your community or in your church and be ashamed of Christ. Hey, it's even possible to be a deacon or an elder or even a pastor and be ashamed of Christ. Since that is the case, it is so crucial that we understand that when Jesus gives this warning, when he fires this warning shot in the air, we all need to be crystal clear on this fact. He's looking you and me squarely in the eye. Verse 26 continues, for whosoever is ashamed of me. Christ says, whoever is ashamed of me. Well, what does it mean to be ashamed of Christ? Well, one way this can show up in your life is if you are simply ashamed of or embarrassed by Christ's disposition, his demeanor, and his nature. I mean, let's face it, folks. There are some people out there for whom Christ is too meek and too milk toast. Christ is too rigid or he's too radical. Christ is too outdated or he's too unconventional. In fact, for some people, Christ is not political enough and for others, Christ is too political. There are certainly people that find themselves taking offense and being ashamed of Christ's general disposition and demeanor and character. But I think for most of us, a more realistic risk is that we will be ashamed of how Christ operates in our lives and in the world. I believe it's a far greater risk for each and every one of us to be ashamed of how Christ chooses to show up and conduct himself in some of our affairs and chooses not to show up and intervene in other affairs that mean a great deal to us. In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison, and John the Baptist, if you don't know who he is, he was someone whose whole life, his whole identity, his whole ministry was invested in getting people ready to meet and follow Jesus. 
Everything about John the Baptist was based upon being the forerunner and preparing the way for those to follow Jesus. And John the Baptist did an excellent job in that ministry. But you see, in this passage in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is no longer preparing people to meet Jesus. He's no longer out in the wilderness preaching repentance and baptizing. Rather, John the Baptist is in prison because he confronted the sin of Herod. We pick up there in Matthew chapter 11, verses two through six, and it says, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And catch this, Jesus closes this out by saying, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You see, John the Baptist was in prison, and he knew full well Christ had the power to liberate him. But Christ wasn't liberating him. Christ wasn't overthrowing the yoke of the Romans. Instead, Christ was preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing other people. And so John the Baptist kind of has what certainly seems like some doubts here and sends these messengers to ask, are you really the one? And Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, blessed is the man or the woman who's not ashamed of how I carry out my affairs in this world. I wonder, are you offended by Christ? Are you ashamed to have a Lord that won't just quietly sit down and shut up and co-sign your five-year plan? Are you offended to have a Lord that seems to be intrusive in the areas of your life in which he dares to meddle, and yet at the same time seems to not intervene in other areas of your life where you really wish he would? When Christ tramples our agendas, when Christ loves our enemies and he shatters our expectations, when he allows us to experience prolonged hardships, we always, always, always have a choice. We can either turn our backs to him in shame and disgust, or we can choose to turn our faces to him and by faith continue to entrust ourselves to him. Jesus continues in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words. I want you to notice here that Jesus does not say whoever is ashamed of me or my words. No, Jesus says whoever is ashamed of me and my words. You see, in Scripture, it is clear that Jesus and his teachings, Jesus and his words, they're virtually indistinguishable. You can basically substitute one for another because there is such a close association. In fact, in the Bible multiple times, Jesus is actually called the word of God. 
Look in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 13, what it says there about Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, it says, he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Again, look at that association, Christ and his words. They are so closely associated that Christ himself is called the word of God. In John chapter one, verse one, similarly, we see there, and this is clearly talking about Jesus. If you read through the first chapter of John, that's, that's undeniable. John chapter one, verse one, speaking of Jesus, it says, in the beginning was the word, that is Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Three times in that short little verse, in the introduction to John's gospel, Jesus is called the word, the word, the word. The reality is, folks, we simply cannot divorce Christ from his word. Christ and his word are a package deal. We recently celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And in the same way, you cannot say, I revere and respect Dr. King, but I can't stand the content of his speeches. In the same way you couldn't do that, you can't say you love Jesus Christ, but you're ashamed of his words. Now, when I'm speaking about Christ's words, I wanna make it clear what I am referring to. When we think of Christ's words, it's important we understand everything that that entails. When I talk about the words of Christ, I am not just referring to the words of Christ that may be printed in red ink or in a red font on your phone. Most of you probably know this if you have any history in the church, but it's very common in many English translations of the Bible that when you're in the New Testament and Jesus is speaking for people to put that font in red if you have a Bible that you access through your phone or for the ink itself to be read if you have a print Bible. And it's important to point out this was not like this in the original manuscripts. In fact, it wasn't until about 1899 that the first ever Bible was printed in which Jesus' words were printed in red ink and all the rest of the Old Testament and all the rest of the New Testament was printed in black ink. And at the time, the belief was this will be a helpful way for people to distinguish the words from Christ from the other words in Scripture, but it had an unintended consequence. You see, over the course of time, people started taking those red words of Christ and giving them a little more weight than the rest of Scripture. In fact, some people went so far as to take, let's say, the words of the Apostle Paul and the words of Jesus in red and kind of pit them against each other. Please listen to me today. The words of the Apostle Paul have as their source the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are just as authoritative as the words of Christ that might be in red in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. In John chapter 16, we see why this is the case. John chapter 16, 
verses 12 through 13, Jesus is towards the end of his ministry. He's about to be crucified and raised and ascend to the right hand of the Father. And towards the end of his earthly ministry, after spending years with the disciples teaching them, we come to our passage in John's gospel in chapter 16. There, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, I still, catch this, have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. In other words, Jesus, towards the end of his earthly ministry, tells the disciples, I've got more truth to share with you. I have more information to reveal to you, but you can't bear it now. So heads up, the Holy Spirit is going to move people in the not too distant future to reveal this truth to you. But don't miss this. It doesn't matter if it's coming through Jude or Peter or Paul, make no mistake about it, these are the words of Christ. And so back in our passage in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, Jesus makes it clear, if anyone is ashamed of Jesus's words, and that's the same thing as saying you're ashamed of Paul's words, Jude's words, Peter's words, etc. If you're ashamed of any of those words in the New Testament, then when Christ returns, he will be ashamed of you. Well, what does it mean to be ashamed of Christ's words? Well, let me give you two quick examples of how this shows up in many people's lives. One way we can show ourselves to be ashamed of the words of Christ is that when we are reading through the Bible, and we come to some teaching, some truth, some ethic that either offends our sensibilities or is offensive to our culture, if we come across those words and we simply ignore them, disregard them, do not submit to them, that is a very common way that we can show ourselves to be ashamed of the word of Christ. But another way this often shows up is we come across the same kind of a thing. We come across a passage in the New Testament that says something about money and tithing, and it's offensive to us or it's offensive to our culture. And so what we do is, instead of just denying it, some of us will get really clever and interpret it away. We'll find a passage that we don't like, that challenges us, that's offensive to the culture, that's contrary to the zeitgeist, and maybe we won't outright deny it, but we'll get real cute, real novel, real clever, and we'll interpret it away. And people do that all the time in the church. They do that with matters of money. They do that with sex and a sexual ethic. Uh, they do that with things like the universal need for everyone to be saved by the finished work of Christ and the universal need we all have for Christ you bump into these words of Christ, these teachings of Christ, and they're offensive to you or the culture, and so we either disregard them or we get novel and cute and clever and we interpret them away. But make no mistake, when we do that, 
when we interpret, interpret away the clear meaning of the text just because it doesn't suit us or the culture, make no mistake, when we do that, we are showing ourselves to be ashamed of Christ's words and thereby, at the end of the day, we're really just ashamed of Christ. Jesus continues in Luke chapter nine, verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. Don't let this confuse you. That phrase, son of man, is one of Jesus's favorite titles for himself. In fact, if it's not the most common way that Jesus refers to himself, it's one of the most common ways Jesus refers to himself. That actually originates in Daniel chapter seven. We don't have time to go there now, but this was a title that Jesus used to refer to himself. And so what he is saying in Luke chapter nine, Jesus is speaking about himself and he's saying this, whoever is ashamed of me, I want you to know this, at some point, in our future, Christ will visibly and physically return to this earth in glory. Christ is going to return to this earth in visible glory. Visible glory that will put to shame the Aurora Borealis and the Grand Canyon. Visible glory that will be overwhelming and beautiful and sublime. And when that day happens in our future, when Christ returns visibly, physically, in great glory, all of those men and all of those women who shied away from Christ and recoiled and were ashamed of him in this life will kick themselves and beat their breasts because they will realize how senseless and foolish it was to be ashamed of someone so sublime and so glorious. The Son of Man is going to return in visible glory, in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I don't know what you're watching these days on TV, but there are some shows out there that seem to have that uh, lasting power. They go on for seven, eight, nine, ten or so seasons, and they just sort of reveal that our culture is fascinated with either the writing or the premise of that show. Uh, one example of a show like that is a show called Undercover Boss. Don't know if you've ever seen Undercover Boss. It's a pretty popular show, but in case you haven't, I want to tell you a little bit about the premise. It's a reality show, and in the Undercover Boss, what happens typically is a CEO or an owner or some very high up person in a plant or in an organization or with a company will uh, put on a disguise and for days or weeks at a time typically work at some entry level role to kind of try and understand the plight of folks that are lower down uh, in the organization and just to sort of do a little investigative, you know, journalism and figure out what's really going on with our company at these, you know, really nitty gritty kinds of levels. And 
What happens in that show quite often, a very common motif and theme is they stumble across some great workers who are working wonderfully and have no idea that the CEO is watching them. And they also work with some people that are lazy or dishonest or just flat out nasty. And kind of the climax of that show is at the end of the program, typically that CEO, that man or that woman would no longer be in a disguise. They would have a nice suit or dress on. They would be very well put together, and they bring these employees into their presence and reveal, hey, you are actually not training a new hire. You are secretly training the CEO, and they're revealed in this great glory and splendor, and their power and their authority is now made known to those lower-level workers, and they either receive punishments or rewards for how they conducted themselves. Folks, I would submit to you, this is a kind of helpful way of thinking about what will happen when the Lord Jesus returns. When he returns in the future, visibly, physically, when he does that, his glory will not be veiled by human flesh, but we will see him in his glorious state. And that is something you can take to the bank. It is coming in the future when we don't know, but it's something that the church has taught because Christ taught it. They have upheld it throughout the centuries because it's a core tenet of our faith. There will be a culmination of this age and Christ will return in glory. Now, when Christ does return in glory, there won't just be this realization of how silly it was that we were ashamed of someone so glorious. It says in our verse that when Christ returns to those that were ashamed of him, Christ will be ashamed. To those who denied Christ, Christ will deny them. And lest you think this is some finger wagging on Jesus's part or just some you know, light slap on the wrist, Nothing could be further from the truth. When Christ denies a man or a woman, when Christ turns away and is ashamed of a man or a woman, it is a matter of life and death, heaven and hell. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 34 describes this future coming of Jesus, and it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep, that is those who are not ashamed of him, on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But catch this, folks. Speaking of those who were ashamed of Christ, he will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read a passage like that, it frightens me. I do not want to stand before Christ one day 
And here, depart from me. I never knew you. I'm sure the same is true of you. And so in our closing moments together, I want to invite you to engage in some self-reflection. I want you to really listen in and take stock. I want to share with you three symptoms that may indicate that you were ashamed of Christ. The first symptom that may indicate that you are ashamed of Christ is simply this. You are still putting off baptism. In the New Testament, time and time again, we are told those who will be saved are those who believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and those who confess with their mouths. One of the primary ways we make a profession with our mouths, if you will, is by going through water baptism. Water baptism is the planting of one's flag and saying, I identify as a follower of Christ. I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. And by being lowered into this water, it's symbolic of me dying to my old way of life. And by being raised out of that water, it's symbolic of me, by the power of the Holy Spirit, being raised and empowered to walk in this new life of following Christ as my Lord. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Folks, one of the main ways we confess with our mouths is through public baptism, where we identify with Christ and identify with his church. If you're someone who has not yet been baptized, I wanna urge you today to think about that and ask yourself, is it possible that I am ashamed of being associated with Christ? If that's you, all around this sanctuary this morning, we have these cards. It's a simple card that just asks if you're interested in baptism and if you wanna go public with your faith. If you have not yet publicly confessed Christ through baptism, I urge you to make the decision today and plant your flag to be baptized. Grab this card, fill it out, and check the top box that says, I'm ready to be baptized. Baptism is one of the primary ways we show ourselves to be identified with and associated with and not ashamed of Christ. Before we move on to the second symptom, one more word for those of you who maybe have not yet been baptized. I realize there are men and women who have not yet been baptized, and it doesn't have much to do with being ashamed of Christ, but rather they're afraid of being up in front of a large crowd, or they have a fear of water, or maybe they were baptized as an infant and they're conflicted on whether or not that was sufficient or if they need to be baptized after having made a profession of faith. Well, hey, if that's you, good news, grab this same card and check the bottom box that says, I want to speak to someone about baptism 
Folks from our staff will reach out to you and help you think through that important decision. We would love to help you out. But if you've not been baptized and you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the most practical ways you can associate and identify with him is through baptism. Don't miss this opportunity this morning if God is working in your heart. Uh, quickly, a second symptom that you might perhaps be ashamed of Christ is you have not shared the gospel or invited someone to church in recent memory. Who's the last person you shared Christ with? Or who's the last person you invited to come to church? Now, I know there can be a whole host of factors that go into that. But sometimes, if we're being honest, one of the reasons why we don't do that is we're ashamed to put that out there and let others know I am a follower of Jesus and I'm connected to a local church body. Hey, if you have been following Jesus and you have either never shared the gospel or you can't remember the last time you did or you've never invited someone to church or you can't think of the last time you did, I wanna issue a challenge to you today. I want you to make a decision right here, right now, that you will either share the gospel with someone in the next 30 days or invite three people to church for our Easter services. Here at our campus, a few weeks before Easter, we will distribute Easter invite cards that will have our service times, our address, and other helpful information, a really practical way you can identify with Christ is by grabbing three of those cards as we make them available in the coming weeks and make a resolution to invite three people to our Easter service. Please do that. It's a wonderful, practical way for you to invite someone that needs the gospel and to publicly identify with Christ. Third and finally, the third symptom that you may be ashamed of Christ is simply this. You have never taken heat from your family, friends, or political tribe as a result of being faithful to Christ's word. I'm gonna say that again because that's kind of a word burger. There's a lot going on there. The third symptom that you may be ashamed of Christ is this. You have never taken heat from your family, your friends, or your political tribe as a result of being faithful to Christ's words. I believe the reality for many of us is that we're scared of others' rejection and disapproval. And so for many of us, when Christ's word teaches something that might put a wedge between us and family, a wedge between us and friends, a wedge between us and those in our political tribe, sometimes if we're being honest, we kind of just deviate from Christ's teaching to not rock the boat. For many of us, we're not willing to risk being called a liberal or a hippie for following Jesus and some of his commands. For others of us, we're not willing to risk being called a bigot or a fundamentalist for not following some of Jesus' commands. But folks, I wanna challenge you today to be faithful to Christ and his word, even above your family relationships, your relationships with friends, and your relationships within your political tribe. When you boil it all down, all three of these symptoms really have the same root cause 
fear of man. It really is that simple, I think, for the most part. The root cause of all three of those symptoms is we have a greater fear of man than we do a fear of God. We're afraid to be rejected. We're afraid to be insulted. And so we have a desire to save face and not take any lumps for following Jesus. We have a desire to do that more so than we do to be faithful to Christ and his word. But Jesus warns us in Luke chapter 12, verses four through five, Jesus says this, he pulls no punches here. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Grace Fellowship, it's far better to lose face now and save your soul on that day than to save face now and lose your soul on that day. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father, and of the holy angels. Father, as scary and frightening as some of these warnings may be at times, God, I thank you that they are there because they are there to get our attention here and now when we can do something about it. God, I pray that for anyone that is here today or maybe watching this online, anyone that is hearing this passage of Scripture, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would invite your Holy Spirit to reveal to us whether or not we are, in fact, ashamed of you and ashamed of your words. God, if that is the case, reveal it to us. Reveal your glory to us. Forgive us for that as we confess that sin and help us, Lord, to be willing to suffer rejection and insults from men if that's the cost of being faithful and identifying with you. God, help us have an awareness of ourselves here and now when we can do something about it rather than be blindsided on that day in the future and here, depart from me, I never knew you. Lord, help us to fear you more than man and to never live our lives ashamed of the one who gave his life for all of us. God, be with us and help us to not be ashamed of you. In Christ's name, amen.